Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The recent suicide of Utah junior high school student David Fan has focused attention on bullying. Other recent teen suicides have prompted action at the Utah legislature. In fact, House Bill 298, the first of a slate of bills aimed at preventing teen suicide and bullying, quoting from the Salt Lake Tribune, finished its journey through the full legislature on Friday, passed the Senate 22 to 4. It would require districts to offer annual seminars to parents on such topics. Other bills that have been proposed at this year's legislature are House Bill 134 and Senate Bill 184, which would require schools to notify parents of bullying or suicide threats. And uh, Senator Luce Robles says she's been working on Senate Bill 184, with the family of David Fan, um, and uh, that would uh, address some of the issues. Senator Eliason, or uh, Representative Eliason, who introduced uh, Bill 154, said uh, he uh, was approached by the uh, father of uh, one suicide victim and uh, recent slate of suicides in his area to uh, sponsor his bill. We uh, have uh, increased awareness on this issue, but what is the solution? We're going to seek solution to the problem with Emily Bazelon, author of Sticks and Stones, Defeating the Culture of Bullying and Rediscovering the Power of Character and Empathy. Later in the program, we'll also be talking with University of Utah Ph.D. candidate Maya Miari, who's developed a new anti-bullying program for school children. What can and should parents, school administrators, legislators, and children themselves do about bullying? We welcome in uh, Emily Bazelon. Welcome to the program. Uh, we don't have her on the phone just yet. We're uh, we're going to be uh, uh, joined by Emily Bazelon soon. Should mention that uh, Emily Bazelon is an editor at Slate Magazine, and uh, she is a contributing writer to the uh, New York Times Magazine and Truman Capote Fellow at Yale Law School. Before joining Slate, she worked as a law clerk in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. She's a graduate of Yale College and Yale Law School and lives in New Haven with her husband and uh, two sons. And the book is Sticks and Stones, Defeating the Culture of Bullying and Rediscovering the Power of Character and Empathy. I believe now we're joined by Emily Bazelon. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Um, Let me begin, or have you begin, with your experience growing up with uh, bullying. This was eighth grade. You write about this uh, in the book, you and, and a friend, Allie. Yeah, so I had an experience of being essentially fired by my friends. And this is something girls do more than boys, really turn on friends. And that can be just a devastating experience. In my own case, I remember just being completely miserable and doing a lot of crying at home for a few months. The episode I wrote about in my book is a more vicious example of bullying that my friend Allie experienced. This was a girl who I became friends with because I needed new friends. And she had also been dumped by a set of girls who were very popular. And they arranged this moment of public humiliation for her in the school lunchroom where a boy shouted something very embarrassing in front of everyone. And I remember feeling just frozen, not coming to her defense in that moment and feeling really cowardly about that. And so one of the reasons I wrote this book was really to try and help other kids do a better job than I did. And you, is this, still, this still affects you, still bothers you. You remember this pretty clearly. Yeah, it does bother me. And I think one insight here is that we often exhort kids to stand up to bullies. But that's quite a hard thing to do. When you have someone who is powerful and aggressive and yelling or being physically very aggressive, it can be very hard to be the person who stands up in the moment, in a moment of confrontation. And so one of the things I learned in my research is that it's important to give kids a variety of strategies. And they can do a lot of good by standing with a victim as well as standing up to a bully. So, for example, you can ask someone who you see who's vulnerable if they're okay or send them a sympathetic text message. Yeah, I, you know, my heart went out to you as the, you know, the eighth grader. I think we all, it's, it's hard with kids because, uh, you know, we're kids. <laughs> and and uh, is, is that too much to ask? You were asking a lot of yourself in the eighth grade. You felt very embarrassed that you hadn't st- stood up. Right. 
well, it's always easier in some ways to be hard on oneself. I mean, I feel comfortable doing that and imagining that I could have done better in that moment. But I also think there is this larger lesson here. And adults are often demanding a lot of kids without really thinking through what it's like for kids in the situation and what kids need to feel supported if they really are going to be upstanders, as they're called. Mm -hmm. I want to, uh, I don't know if you have your book with you. I, I don't have a oh, copy right in front of me. Okay, I'll just have you tell the story then. Um, this is very interesting. This illustrates uh, how clearly people tend to remember the, these events as adults. And you talked with a couple of gentlemen, Adam and Brad, who had been involved right, on opposite right. sides of a bullying incident. Right. So this is a story about a kid who was weaker and more vulnerable and known as being effeminate in high school. He came out later. And there was a group of boys he was really desperate to get in with, and they were rejecting him. And so one day he said something at school they didn't like. He made fun of one of them, or they felt that way, about a low test score in math. And this group of boys kind of plotted a pretty vicious assault where they waited for this moment, again, a moment of public humiliation, where he was in the gym. There were lots of kids milling around. One of them got behind him and crouched down, and then these other kids pushed him over the kids. That, so he fell backwards, and then they really pummeled him, and he just remembers it as this moment in which his sense of self-worth was really shredded. Hmm. Then they they connected, or at least they spoke, I guess, through social media or something later in life after they'd grown up. Right. So Adam, as an adult, became a middle school counselor um, and especially works with LGBT kids and wanted to go back to the kind of the ringleader of the bullies in his own case to find out what that person had been thinking and how he felt about it years later. And I, what I really love about this exchange is that the kid who had acted like a bully was at, in, now as an adult really regretted what he'd done and was able to express remorse and think about the role he'd played. And I actually think that's true for a lot of kids who act as bullies, that later they're able to reflect and really imagine the feelings of empathy that they should have had in the moment. And uh, the thing that struck me about, and you quote uh, Brad, who was who was involved in the bullying, he was one of the bullies, uh, as saying that it, it, he remembers it clearly. He remembers the time he knew it was wrong, but that didn't seem to matter in the in the moment. Right, and this is a really important part of this whole dynamic: is that kids who act like bullies freeze themselves from feeling these this sense of empathy, from really valuing their sense of how other kids feel. And so then the question is how to change that. And I think one answer is that, unfortunately, still in a lot of schools, you can become more popular by being mean and being callous, the way Brad was acting in that moment. And what we want is a school culture where kids become more valued for being kind and for standing up for other kids. Hmm. Um, so you, and that's in your subtitle. We want to, and you, I think you consider empathy to be one of the, one of those values that has to be taught. I, I do. And what I mean by that isn't that you go around kind of bl over, in a heavy-handed way telling kids they have to have empathy, because I don't think that works. In the same way, just saying to them, don't bully, is not a message that's meaningful. But I think kids really do respond to being inspired to feel empathy. When you ask them to imagine themselves in the role of a character in a book who is vulnerable, but who they could identify with. When they're watching a movie and they can really see from the point of view of someone who has disabilities or is different in another way. Those can be really transformative moments for kids. Mm -hmm. Now, a key question, of course, I'm sure you get this a lot, why do kids bully? And you point out in your, in your, in your preface, prologue, uh, you know, kids probably been bullying kids, you know, ever since Adam and Eve. Or right. at least they're, they're I kids. think that's true. And I think the crucial thing is to imagine that we can have fewer bullies and less bullying going on, which I really do think is possible. The, the question you asked, why do kids bully? There are different kinds of bullies, which make it a little complicated. There are some kids who really do bully to enhance their own stat social status and popularity. And they can be pretty manipulative. And with those kids, the trick is to kind of snap them out of it, to get them to think about social status and their own power in a more 
positive and benevolent way. There is also a group of kids, though, who are pretty different. They're called bully victims, and they do lash out and bully kids, but they also get on the other side of the equation, they end up being victimized as well. And those kids tend to have the biggest psychological problems. And I think in their case, the bullying is really a cry for help. Mm. Uh, so a, a power differential is one of the, one of the keys. Yes, it's absolutely key. I think it's important to remember that the proper definition of bullying when we're really trying to tackle it as a social problem is a pretty limited one. We're talking about physical or verbal abuse that's repeated over time and involves a power imbalance. So this isn't just a one-off fight, and it's not what the kids often call drama, a conflict that's going back and forth between equals. We're talking about one kid really lording it over another kid to make him miserable. And some of the some of these can be can be horrible. Right? It could go on for a long time. You know, some are not, but uh, some is just it's make your life miserable. Right, and it's these chronic episodes of bullying when adults or other kids don't step in to stop it that really do long-term psychological harm. And this is why this problem is worth taking seriously. You know, I do still hear from people, look, kids will be kids. This is just part of growing up. But I think if you, if you remember that bullying is a particular and harmful form of aggression, you understand why that's not an acceptable answer. Because if you define bullying properly, it's linked to both short-term and long-term psychological problems. A new study just came out showing that kids who were bullied and grew up 20 years later, and also kids who were both bullies and victims, have higher rates of depression and anxiety and suicidal thinking. Now, given that, and you, you write in your book, you know, most kids bounce back from bullying. Most kids learn from this. You'd, it, it's not the majority, thank heaven, that are like David Fan, who I made reference to earlier in the, in the program, a, a junior high school student here in Utah who recently committed suicide. He was a, a gay young man, uh, Asian. Uh, he was bullied, uh, speculation because of, of those things, and he couldn't handle it. Um, but there are, there are the, that, that subset that uh, makes this an especially serious and, and imminent problem, right, that, that, that do go to suicide. Exactly. You have to kind of hold on to two truths at once. The first is that, thank God, most people are resilient, and humans have an amazing capacity to absorb trouble and problems and come through it. And in some cases, adversity really does make us stronger. I would say that about my own experience of being bullied. But unfortunately, there is a smaller group of people who really struggle. And because we can't know ahead of time who is who, we really have to look out for them and take this problem seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you could uh, introduce us just briefly to the to the three uh, kids, at least at this point they're kids, um, who I think illustrate, and that's why you chose them, uh, several facets of the problem, uh, beginning with Monique. Monique was a seventh grader who was starting a new school, and she was really excited because she had a new hairstyle. Alas for her, she got on the bus, and some older girls who felt like she was copying her started calling her a biter, which was their word for copycat. This should have been a small, private dispute, but it just continued and escalated and moved from the bus into school and onto the Internet. And after months of this and the school's real failure to address it adequately, Monique's mother pulled her out of school. Hmm. And uh, this illustrates kind of a, uh, it's a back and forth often that happens between parents and school. Where is the responsibility? Right. So one mistake that the school made in Monique's case was that they recommended peer mediation for Monique and these girls who are bullying her. That's a form of conflict resolution that can work when kids are equals. But as Monique's mother intuitively understood, the bullies would probably just sit down in the room with Monique and say what an adult wanted to hear and then walk out and start giving her an even harder time for being a snitch. And so that's the kind of mistake that schools can make, unfortunately, that really makes things harder for kids. And this did include some cyberbullying, I believe, that um, you talk about the incarceration of cyberbullying. used to be it was at school, you could go home and escape. Now, if, if the bully gets online, uh, you can't escape it. 
Right. And this is a way in which I think bullying has changed and made it feel to kids who are targeted like it's really 24-7. Instead of coming home from school and crying and just getting a break, kids often feel correctly like other kids are still gossiping about them online. And they can get drawn in to retaliating and just feeling like there's this bullying is going on 24-7, which is really hard. And especially girls, uh, I guess boys as well, girls go back and read something that's been written over and over and over and obsess on it. Exactly. I think girls do socialize more online than boys. Um, We know, for example, that girls, teenagers, send an average of 90 texts a day compared to 50 texts a day for boys. And there's a way in which the online culture can really catch people up, and it can be very hard for them to stop checking and looking at what other people are saying. So that is a very apt phrase, the incarceration of cyberbullying. You never get away from it. Right, exactly. So, the, and, and you've talked about long-term consequences for some people, and, and for some it, it ends in, in people taking their own lives. For many, you, you do learn the lessons and, and, and bounce back. This also illustrates something uh, in, in Monique's case. Um, I think parents don't know what to do. Right. I think you're right. There is a sense that parents can try to help. Um, what, I, what I advise for parents is, first of all, to make sure they really understand all the facts. You know, the best way to be an advocate for your kid is essentially to think like a police officer or a lawyer and write things down. Make sure you have evidence about what's happening and that you really understand whether this is bullying or whether it's a more two-way conflict. And then you're more equipped to talk to another parent if you think there's someone trying trustworthy involved who it would help to go to, or to go to the school and ask for help. Hmm. We'll get into talking about some of the, the programs, but just generally, do you, uh, you think we're making progress with some of the programs? They're usually based in schools. You know, I do, and here's why. I think we're in the middle of a cultural shift about bullying in which we're starting to take this problem seriously and put resources toward addressing it. And there are other good examples of problems we have really made headway at when we all come together as a society and decide that we are going to change a norm. So, for example, when you look at drunk driving, when I was in high school, I hate to admit it, but it was like a tiny bit cool. Now, I don't think teenagers see it that way, and that's because we had a mass media campaign, we had parents, schools, everybody get on board. When you look at the rates of drunk driving among teenagers, they are significantly down. So I hope that we are going to see the same kind of progress with bullying. Hmm. What if you could uh, tell us just briefly about Jacob? He's, uh, uh, by the way, chapters one, two, and three, you introduce us to these uh, young people, and then you continue their stories on through to some uh, ideas about solutions. uh, Jacob. Jacob was a kid who, in seventh and eighth grade, started wearing nail polish and dyeing his hair pink and purple. And he lived in upstate New York in a community where that was not regular behavior for boys. And the other kids at his school gave him a very hard time. Like Monique, part of his problem was that the school just didn't they fumbled their response to this issue, and so it went on for quite a while. And Jacob ended up successfully suing his school district, winning some money for himself, but more importantly, some promises for changes to both policies and the curriculum at his school. So that, that's quite the step. Um, he, he actually sued his school district successfully. Right. And this is something that gay students have been able to do in a number of cases, and it's Hmm. made a real difference. Part of what's really at issue here is we're going through this rapid period of social transformation in which kids who are gay often get a message of real acceptance and embrace from the national media. You know, they watch shows like Glee or they look at the It Gets Better project, which is really fabulous, and they get the sense that it's a great thing to come out. But then in their local communities, that they're just not, there's no support for that. The people around them are not ready. And so I see them as kind of on the front lines of this big shift that's happening. Mm-hmm. And the media, at least, you hear about, uh, it seems to be, if, if, you know, if you just uh, took an informal uh, poll of all the stories you hear, it's, it seems to be a disproportionate number of uh, gay youngsters who are, are bullied. Is that the case? 
Yes, that is still a real problem. Gay kids are at a higher risk of bullying and harassment, and because often that comes out of a hostile culture, it can also mean that they're at a higher risk for attempting suicide. So this is really a problem that we need to address. And who is vulnerable to bullying? Any any kid who's different? There are particular groups of kids who are more vulnerable. So gay kids are a good example. Disabled kids have a real problem with this. And so do kids who are a religious or ethnic minority in a particular community. Hmm. And uh, who is, who's at risk to be a bullier? Do we, do we have studies on that? We have studies showing that kids who are bullies tend to be at higher risk for depression, might be surprising to you, and it doesn't define all the bullies, but there are some kids who are really acting out their own problems. And we also can see that bullies tend to be, particularly if they're boys, physically stronger and more aggressive than other kids. We are talking with Emily Bazelon. She's author of a new book on bullying, Sticks and Stones, Defeating the Culture of Bullying and Rediscovering the Power of Character and Empathy. We, uh, of course, have had a a spotlight shown on bullying once again in Utah with the recent uh, very public suicide of uh, junior high school student David Fan. Other recent teen suicides have prompted action at the Utah legislature. Uh, One of those bills has recently passed. Others are moving through the, uh, the legislature. And uh, we're going to be talking later in the program also with University of Utah Ph.D. candidate Maya Miari. She's developed a new anti-bullying program for school children. We're asking the questions, what can and should parents do, school administrators, legislators, and children? What can we do about bullying? What are some of the solutions? Emily Bazelon has uh, several solutions in the book. We'll be uh, talking about those as we go along following this break. Hey, Seeking This American Life. Why do anything new? Let's face it, we love routine. We want things to stay the same. Reruns are more comforting than regular TV. Last night, I was watching TV, and I couldn't find a rerun anywhere, and I was, like, panicking and flipping, flipping. Oh, oh, there was a rerun, though. It was, like, a rerun of, like, uh, The Nanny was on, and I don't have any relationship with it, so I was, like, stuck. I've stuck in reruns this week. American Life on Utah on Utah Public Radio, uh, Friday at 3 a.m. and Sunday at 2. The recent suicide of Utah junior high school student David Fan has focused attention on bullying. Other recent teen suicides have prompted action at the Utah legislature. This is an ongoing problem. Of course, there's increasing awareness of the problem. We're focusing on uh, solutions, and we're talking with uh, Emily Bazelon, author of Sticks and Stones, Defeating the Culture of Bullying and Rediscovering the Power of Character and Empathy. We'd love to hear your experience, uh, perhaps as a child, perhaps uh, your children now, uh, and uh, what you think the solution should be. The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. It's a very vexing and complicated problem, and uh, perhaps you have a question on how to handle it with uh, someone you love. 1-800-826-1495, or you can email us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Uh, I mentioned uh, the complexity. You make that point in the in the book, Emily Bazelon. It's very complex, especially maybe as a parent. Your child comes to you, describes something that's happening. First of all, even to know if this is bullying. And second, uh, there can be a, a very blurring of the line between the bullied and the bullier. Uh, um, and uh, I wonder how to parse that out as a parent. Right. I think it's really important not to oversimplify this problem and to take it seriously so then we can find the best kinds of solutions for it. And one of the key things is to get everybody on board to really think through how you change a social norm in a community and make bullying just not acceptable, not the route to becoming more socially successful if you're a teenager. Hmm. Um, so are, are there specific questions you can ask your your teenager to, to, to kind of get to the bottom of these things? Yes, you can really try to understand what the dynamic is in the among the kids in his class. And sometimes parents also learn things from checking on a kid's Facebook page or Twitter or whatever social media account they're using because you can see how the kids are interacting. Hmm. That brings up an interesting question. You treat this in the book. Um, 
you know, we, we don't want to be helicopter parents. We don't want to hover too much. And in fact, it can be good for kids to work through their, their problems. On the other hand, there are real dangers here. How, how close should you be? How close should you be checking their, their Facebook account, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I really recommend starting off stricter and then easing up later. That's always the easier direction to move in. And so I'm a parent. I mean, with my own kids, when my son first got his phone a few months ago, he's 13, he seemed ready for it. I got him a phone that didn't have the Internet and didn't have a camera. I just don't see why he needs to be walking around with the Internet in his pocket, given how young he is. And in the beginning, I think it's a good idea to just scroll through text messages periodically. This is a whole new mode of communication. And so in the same way, I wouldn't want my son to just walk out the door at midnight. I also want to guide him through his first steps online. And then when I see he can handle it, I can ease up. Hmm. What about uh, school teachers, school administrators? Are there specific things that they can ask the, the kids and investigate to get to the bottom of these things? It can be very complicated to, to, to parse these things out. Right. It's true. I say in the book, and it seems kind of silly, but I think it's really the case that investigating bullying is like investigating a crime. You have he said and she said, and you have to be able to sort out where the truth lies in between that. I do think that kids are often surprisingly honest about the roles they're playing and that listening to them closely is often the most important place to start. But, you know, in a broader sense, too, it's the adults at a school really set the tone. When I walk into school, and I hear adults yelling at each other or snapping at kids, that's a school that's going to have a bigger problem with bullying because the kids are going to pick up on that dynamic. Hmm. Uh, there's a very interesting column here in the Deseret News uh, the paper out of Salt Lake City. Lois Collins is the columnist. She talked about it, an experience that her, I think it was a niece, Lulu, had. She was being bullied, and uh, she says her she feels like her the parents handled it pretty well, but they, were, they still didn't know all that was going on. And uh, the the bullying ended when a group of boys stepped in, intervened, and and basically stopped the bullying. Uh, you were getting to that. You you wish you had done something in eighth grade. I wonder how we get more children to step in. Uh, this seems like maybe the most uh, effective solution. That's a great point and a great question. Bullying almost always takes place in front of an audience of other kids. But the kids, we know from studies, only step in about 20% of the time. When they do intervene, they can stop the bullying in half the cases. So they are a really important piece of the puzzle. And then the question is, okay, what kind of environment helps kids step forward and feel safe about doing that, feel rewarded for doing that, instead of being rewarded for urging on the bullying? Mm-hmm. So the, 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 and that can be changed, I assume, that with, with some interventions by adults, perhaps uh, the, that reward system. Right. Well, if you're in a school where kids really are being instilled and steeped in empathy and understand that, you know, kindness is also a way to be socially acceptable, socially successful, then you have a much better chance that kids are going to come through in that crucial moment. Your friend Allie from eighth grade, it was interesting to uh, when you updated uh, her story. Uh, She had learned empathy, but it was kind of empathy in the reverse way that usually think about it. She, she, her parents instilled in her empathy to try to understand the bulliers. Right. I mean, for her, this was a really powerful idea that there was something wrong with how those kids felt about themselves that explained the cruelty that she was experiencing. And she grew up to be a middle school teacher and found in working with kids that her own experience was actually really valuable. Hmm. And this after, I mean, you know, some very, could be potentially very scarring things happen to her. Right. Well, this is this conundrum again, where for some people, overcoming adversity is a powerful motivator for becoming a better person and for working to help make the world a better place. So I do think it's important to remember that part of the dynamic, even though, you know, neither Ali nor I would wish on our own children the kinds of things that we experience. Mm -hmm. Yet you look back and you, you learned from it. 
I, yes, very much learned from it. I mean, I think that it was pretty transformative and shaped who I am, but I also feel lucky. The bullying for me really ended. It, you know, went on for a few months. I had this miserable eighth grade year, but I was a pretty happy high school student. Mm -hmm. So I think there's also a lesson here in, you know, how much uh, pain and psychological anguish can kids go through. There's moderate doses of it, which can be character building, but if we let things go unaddressed for a long time, it can have a much more corrosive and distressing effect. And there's one of those vexing questions for parents, when to intervene. Exactly. And I think here, again, you really have to listen to your kids. You don't want to be a parent who is hovering so much that your kids never learn how to manage conflict, because that's a hugely important skill for growing up and being an adult. On the other hand, if your child is really miserable, or if you see another person's child who's miserable and you think your kid is inflicting some pain, that's worth stepping in for. You don't want your kid to be the person who other kids look back on in high school as the really mean kid. Uh, we do have a uh, caller, and uh, I believe the uh, name is uh, Camera from Roosevelt. Am I saying your name right? Yes, yes. Okay, I'm glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Okay, my question is, at my school, I feel like it's the principal who's bullying, you know, along with the teachers, also the kids, also one of the administrators over her is a very big bully. What do we do in that situation? That's a really tough issue. You're right. I mean, the role that adults play, if they are lording it over kids or each other, that really sends the wrong message to kids. So I wonder if that's something you could take up with your local school board or address where having parents come together to let the principal know that that's just not acceptable behavior. But that's a hard dynamic, I understand. Uh, Camera, so the principal the, the, and the, these adults, they're bullying kids? Well, in a sense, yes, yeah. <laughs> I mean, not out and out, but yeah, some of the comments and the way they treat people, it feels like to me, yeah, they're bullying. Hmm. Yeah, so that, that's an especially hard problem if the, if the adults are part of the problem. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, uh, good luck with that, Cameron. Appreciate your call. All right. Thank you so much. Um, Emily Baslon, what about, I mean, that we're focusing on teenagers. That's where I assume most, the vast majority of the bullying happens. Uh, do a, I mean, there are there are some adult on adult bullying I I would assume. Yes, you're right. Bullying can be a real issue in the workplace. And obviously here we really do have this very clear power dynamic where you can have supervisors or people who are bosses really being able to undercut the people who work for them, or in this case, the kids out of school. And I guess in Camera's case there in Roosevelt, this would have to be, I assume, parents, community members coming in to try to try to solve this problem. Right. I think you do have to send a message back to school leadership that this is just something the community won't accept, and that's a matter of collective action, which is not an easy thing to pull off, but it can be really important. I wonder if you could tell me about the uh, third person that you profile in depth, Flannery. This, I, I believe Flannery was a, is a bullier, or was. Right. So this is this complicated story where a girl named Phoebe Prince, um, who was 15 at the time, committed suicide in the town of South Hadley, Massachusetts. And her death was directly blamed on bullying. And six kids, including Flannery, faced very heavy criminal penalties for their, uh, their supposed role in the suicide, in which they were facing 10-year prison sentences. So I went in and spent a lot of time in South Hadley and got access to some court documents in order to understand what had happened. There was so much blaming going on, and I wanted to find out, you know, what the underlying facts really were. It turned out that bullying was a trigger in Phoebe Prince's suicide, but she also had underlying mental health troubles. She had had been medicated for depression, and she had attempted suicide and been someone who was cutting herself. And so my effort in kind of telling the story was to explain what had really happened to her in all of its complexity so we could think about whether using the criminal justice system to come down on a bunch of kids and actually blame them for Phoebe's death was really the right response. Hmm. And you, you do advocate in the, the book, um, advocate is not the right word, but you, you say that harsh penalties probably aren't the answer in most cases. I think 
that's right. I think this trend toward criminalization for bullying is the wrong way to go. And the reason is it doesn't really get at the underlying problem. We kind of let ourselves experience this moment of moral outrage and a zeal to punish and pinning it, all of the blame on a few kids who become examples for everybody else. But when you think about the case of Phoebe Prince and the depression and other issues she was suffering from, there were some warning signs that were missed, and I would much rather see us put our energy into suicide prevention than into blaming kids. So that's some education that should go on as well, uh, looking for warning signs. Exactly. That is a really important part of the equation. In my book, I talk about some strategies for that and also try to provide some resources for educators and parents. Uh, by the way, emilybazelon.com, and there's a whole section on, uh, there's a question and answer section, then resources for parents, resources for school administrators, resources for kids as well. Uh, one, one key question that I'm neglected until this point, we may have uh, some some kids listening who are being bullied, what's the first step? If you're being bullied, what do you do first? You have to think through what is really going to improve your situation. And if you're really experiencing chronic bullying, it's time to find someone you trust, hopefully an adult, who you think you can go to and can help. Because this really is a problem that you shouldn't have to solve on your own. The trick is to pick the right person, someone who is going to be able to listen and help you think through the best way to approach a tricky problem. Because if you're in a school where there's a culture about snitching, um, then you know, going to someone without thinking through all the consequences can actually backfire. That's a sad part of the research about bullying that a lot of kids find that they tell adults and their situation doesn't improve. So the trick is to understand that when you're telling someone something because you need help, that is not snitching. That's your own advocating for yourself. And then you have to figure out who can really help you address this problem, whether it's your mom or dad or someone at school or maybe someone in a community group that is a step removed and can have a more objective perspective on your problem. We're talking uh, this hour with Emily Bazelon. She's written a new book on bullying, Sticks and Stones, Defeating the Culture of Bullying and Rediscovering the Power of Character and Empathy. As I just mentioned, emilybazelon.com is a place you can go and uh, get some of these resources. Um, Emily Bazelon has studied this uh, problem in depth. We're looking at some solutions. Utah legislature is as well. Several bills are running through the legislature, and uh, you can uh, call your question or comment. We hope that you will at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or email us at upraxis at gmail.com. Matt in Logan joins us next. Matt, uh, glad you called. Go ahead. Hey, thank you so much. First of all, I just want to say thank you for covering this um, subject. It's something that everybody deals with um, on some level or at some angle um, in their life. Um, my specific question I have a six-year-old son who um, is repeatedly um, bullied by um, this group of people that he, at this time, considers his friends. Um, and I, I guess my question is, is, when do you know if it's, when it's appropriate um, for, say, me, as, as the parent of the child being bullied, to go to the parents of the bullier, um, of the bully, and um, get involved and have that have that conversation. That is such a good question. I'm so glad you brought that up. I think you have to ask yourself what you know about these other parents. Do you think they're trustworthy, or do you think that they may be part of the problem? We live in a culture right now where sometimes parents have a really hard time seeing their kid in the wrong in any way and can be uh-huh. just kind of – defensive in a knee-jerk way without really thinking about how sometimes the best way to advocate for your kid is to tell them that they are not in the right and try to help improve their character that way. But I think it's really specific to the context and who these parents are. And it really depends if you feel like these parents are going to be able to hear you or if they're just going to shut out what you're saying. And if they do shut out what you're saying, um, uh, what's what's your next steps? Is this bullying that's taking place in school to some degree? Um, to some degree in school, um, the parents are actually, the whole family is actually um, very good friends of ours. 
Um, oh, so that's in, tricky. So you do know these parents areas. pretty well. I mean, what do you think their response would be if you tried to go to them and say, look, we're really concerned about this? Um, we've, we've tried to start some of those conversations um, and express to them how we feel the, the problems are not being dealt with. Um, and their opinion is, well, we just choose to parent our kids a different way. Um, hmm. and, and so I'm kind of at that point now where um, I'm not really sure what the next step is, whether it's best to just distance ourselves from the family um, or, um, or if it's best to, you know, um, let time kind of work through this and, and, uh, allow the kids to, as you, as you mentioned, make this a character building experience. Um, I'm just not sure what the next step is. Do you feel like this is a pretty toxic experience for your kid and he's really suffering? Because if that's the case, I wonder if taking a break from this set of relationships might be a really good idea for everybody. Um, and and my I guess my concern there is these kids are in his class. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are neighbors of ours that live three doors away. Um, you know, we we attend the same church. Um, it, it, you know, so unless I move, I'm just, uh, mm -hmm. have, like, it's not like it's easy little, to get away from them. It's, it's kind of yeah, a big difficult. deal to make a break. Yeah. That sounds really tricky. I mean, is there anyone at your church who might be able to help and step in and say to these other parents, look, you know, you may, of course you have the right to parent your kid however you want, but you might want to rethink this because your kids are really causing harm. So, so maybe a mediator would be a would be a good option. Yeah, sometimes when you know you have two people and they both have their point of view, if you have a third person who says, "Hey, wait a second, it kind of makes the people in the wrong see that their perspective on this is not actually the socially acceptable one. That can be really helpful. Okay. Okay, that's a good option. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Matt. You're welcome. Good, good, good luck with that. That uh, sounds like a very complicated problem. Uh, thanks. I'm glad you called. The number is 1-800-826-1495. Uh, we have about 10 minutes left in this conversation. 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Emily Bazelon, our guest, Sixton Stones, the uh, book. Subtitle is Defeating the Culture of Bullying and Rediscovering the Power of Character and Empathy. And now we bring in additionally... Uh, Maya Mieri, who is a, a doctoral candidate at the University of Utah. Uh, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me this morning. I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. Yes, you did. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, she, uh, Maya Mieri is, uh, has recently uh, put together an anti-bullying uh, uh, program, mm -hmm. Uh, which is being implemented, and uh, this specifically combats bullying uh, with regard to body image. Am I am I correct in that? Yes, and especially fat bias. And well, I wanted to educate students about size discrimination, which is going on in our society, mm -hmm. and and also weight related teasing, which is a form of bullying. Mm hmm. Uh, and what uh, what are some of the steps in your program that uh, the schools are implementing? Um, so one of my mentors, Dr. Uh, Moises Prospero, has been researching within the Canyon School di District. And so he was the key person to bring me in that school district. And then, well, originally, you know, my research started from my own personal story. <clears throat> and then I grew up in Japan that my PE teacher made a comment about my appearance. She literally like told me that um, I had a big thighs in front of other students. And so I personally struggled with my body image and kind of like ended up engaging unhealthy behaviors based on that experience. So that was my start of this research journey. 
Hmm. Based on your your personal experience, let's uh, we'll right. we'll uh, we'll consider this further, and we'll have more from Emily Baslon. Uh, we want to go to our next caller, who is Chris in Logan. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the program, Chris. So glad you called. Hi. Thank you for having me on here. Yes, um, I had a question, and it goes a little bit different um, from our, the last speaker that I was just talking. But um, my question was: I have a eight year old son who gets bullied, and we didn't find this out um, until we actually were having him tested for autism and um, different spectrum uh, spectrum disorders, and the people doing the testing had gone into his elementary school to observe him, and we found this out through that process. And so my question is, what do I do where I feel like the bullying is going on at his elementary school, and I've been trying to communicate with um, the the principal and his teachers, and I I continue to get um, kind of like a closed door. Like, I'll he'll come home, he'll have marks on his body, like he'll have a fat lip, I'll contact the principal, I'll contact the teachers, and they'll, it always turns into that he said, she said. And I kind of, like the last caller, want to know, what point do, what where do I go or how far do I take this as a parent? Emily Bazelon, thoughts on that? You know, kids with um, aut- the, uh, kids who are on the autism spectrum really are at an increased risk for bullying, because I'm sure, as you know, part of their deficit just makes it hard for them to respond socially in the way other kids expect. And so, I think it's really important to be alert to bullying um, for your child and make sure that the teacher and the people at the school are really being sensitive to his issues and to making sure other they are really sending the message to other kids that they need to be kind to him. And what about this uh, question of it, it seems like it's a he said, she said kind of a thing, how, how to get the school administrators to, to get to the bottom of it? You know, that happens a lot. Often kids who bully have this whole narrative they construct that justifies their behavior. They'll come up with reasons for what they've done, ways in which they say another kid provoked them. But if it's a dynamic of bullying where the kids who are being mean really have more power, the school needs to be able to see through that and get to the bottom of what's going on. And that's where I'm wondering, because I've I've talked with them, and their solution was, well, we can put your son in a special class maybe to help him navigate the situations. And so I just feel like, why is it that my son, who already has a disorder, has to be pulled out of it instead of maybe the bullies being pulled aside? Because whenever it happens, and it is a particular group of boys that bully my son, um, it's almost, I, I never hear any side of the, there's never any dialogue going on with the other parents. It's always like, well, you know, he's he's the socially awkward one. He's the one that might not respond to these situations. It's almost that they feel like they're justified in doing this. Yeah, it sounds like they're almost blaming him, and the idea that he should be taken out of the classroom, it makes it into his problem. That seems deeply unfair to me. Yeah, I mean, and, and they, they are. The school is very aware of... Um, his disability and, or his, well, he has several disabilities. Um, and so that's where I was just, what do I, where, do I go? Like I, I started documenting him, started taking pictures of when he is um, coming home with, you know, fat lips or bruises or scrapes or things like that. And he, and the, the thing is that as with his disorder, for him, he was like, oh, well, they were just joking. And uh-huh. he really doesn't, so he's he trying to make light of it himself. Realize it. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think it's really important for you to keep a log, and pictures are a really good idea. And then when you have some evidence that you feel certain about, and it sounds like you're already working on this, which is great, you know, that's when you make it, you must have an IEP process going on, right, as part of special ed. And I think you should be able to raise that in this context and make sure that the solution is not one that involves essentially penalizing your own child for the fact that other kids are causing him harm. Okay. Th- th- cool. Thanks, Chris. Thank that's a <laughs> that's a so tough much. that's a tough problem. Uh, good luck with that. Hope you can find a solution there. Chris and Logan called one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. We have about uh, three minutes left in the program. You can get a quick call in if you'd like one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. Maya Mieri, uh, I noticed in uh, part of the steps in your program that you've uh, developed, mm-hmm. uh, teaching core values such as empathy. Yes. Uh huh. Yes, that was my one of my passion, and simply like you know the like previous school teachers are not trained to educate kids about bullying. 
and most of teachers feel uncomfortable. So that's why I came in to take over that role. Mm-hmm. And, you know, any kids have empathy, but kind of like sometimes adults don't, um, you know, well, well, kids don't have opportunity to realize when to use their empathy in the school setting. Um, so basically, we had like, you know, eight weeks talked about these issues uh, once a week, um, 50 minutes. Um, and then also we did role plays, how we can use our empathy. Mm-hmm. So that was like, you know, main part of the program and actually like skills training. Yeah, so that this can be learned, can be practiced, you're saying. Right, yeah. We all know that. You know, we have to be kind, but like when and how. Yeah. And then sometimes we have to stand up for peers who we don't know. It doesn't matter if we are friends or not. And kind of like, you know, educating kids to remind their core values and then use that core values every situation. That was my main message from that program. Emily Bazelon, this is in the subtitle of your book, uh, Rediscovering the Power of Character and Empathy. How, how, how do we do this with our kids? Well, I think this can really start at home around the dinner table. I mean, it's as simple as ima- asking your kid to imagine what it feels like to be in someone else's shoes and to value the feelings of someone else. I agree that schools can also play a role, but I think it's really important for parents to take this on. You know, one question I have is whether we value achievement and individual happiness for our kids more than we do kindness and the collective good and a sense of moral development. You know, are you just as pleased with your kid if they come home and tell you about standing up for someone who's weaker as you would be with a really great report card? And if you if you value that as a parent, I guess the, the, the child's more likely to pick that up. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It makes a real difference to kids, whether you're sending them a message that it's more important to be happy on their own or to be good. You know, I would argue also that being good and helping other people is a route to happiness. Hmm. Uh, Maya Miari, we're, we're running out of time here, but uh, just briefly, I noticed uh, yeah. on week eight, this is the last step in your program, uh, students uh, create bullying awareness uh, posters. Uh, students themselves get involved. I guess that's a key. Right. Yes. And then definitely, like, you know, a whole community has to be involved, not mm-hmm. only for students, like Emily said, and then prevention starts from home. So in the future, I'd like to prevent, uh, I mean, prevent the program uh, to educate school administrators, teachers, parents, and also students. And uh, 30 seconds left, Emily Bazelon, what uh, your, your takeaway message, I guess, to parents, school administrators, uh, students themselves? It really is about the power of empathy. Almost all of us have this capacity, and we really need to help kids build this up and learn to express and regulate their feelings. That is the best antidote to bullying and the best way to really reduce it and prevent it from happening. And uh, more information, there's a lot of good information, resources at emilybazelon.com. You click on the resources, and there's resources for um, kids and for parents and for uh, school administrators and others. Uh, Emily Bazelon, author of Sticks and Stones, Defeating the Culture of Bullying and Rediscovering the Power of Character and Empathy. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, University of Utah Ph.D. candidate Maya Mieri, who has developed a new anti-bullying program for school children. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And coming up uh, tomorrow, we're uh, putting together a program on the case that's uh, now reached its way to the uh, Supreme Court, the California Prop 8, gay marriage. We're going to debate that, if we can get that together for tomorrow. That's coming up. Um, And for producers uh, Danny Hayes and Addison Pace, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening.